0: please, to Luke 23. Taking a brief break from our teaching through the book of Ephesians to focus our attention this week in particular on the crucifixion of Jesus. Traditionally, this is Palm Sunday, as I mentioned earlier, where we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, which was a bit of fool's gold not for Jesus, but for those who heralded him as king. Because only a few short days later, he would be arrested. The sentimentality of the crowds would turn on him, and he would be crucified and hanged on a tree, cursed. Of course, we know the rest of the story. He would not stay dead. The curse would be broken, and he would break it for The Father would raise him in power from the dead, and he would conquer sin, evil, and death. We will talk much more about that next week from Luke chapter 24. But today we will focus our attention on Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. I said in my prayer just a few moments ago that when we step into this final week of Jesus' life, his Passion Week, passion as a way of talking about Jesus' suffering and his death. When we step into this final week of Jesus' life, we are reading holy words, and as we get to this final day, whenever he was tried and, and crucified, we feel like we have entered into the holiest places, the inner sanctum. And I think if we have eyes to see and hearts that can embrace such words that it is though we are treading on holy ground, kind of like Moses did when God met with him at the burning bush, when he was giving him his instructions to go in and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. That's how I feel when I come to this text. And so with humility, but with gratitude, I want to read it to all of us. I invite you to follow along, and then we will take some time to examine Not in every detail, because we don't have time to do that today, but in keeping with Luke's intention to tell a story, we want to go through the story and try to to gain the main point for our faith as we walk away from our gathering together today. So let's read together from Luke chapter 23, all of it. This is the word of the Lord. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty Of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." And having said this, he breathed his last. Then, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, "Certainly this man was innocent." And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, the good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. God bless to us the reading of his holy word. The first thing and perhaps the predominant thing that really resonates through the first portion of the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel is this. Because of the fall, humanity has become self-righteous and sought to self-justify. I know the screen behind you says self-righteousness. I mean self-righteous. Because of the fall, humanity has become self-righteous and sought to self-justify. To understand why we come to that conclusion, why we discern that it is important for us to lay a little bit of context and groundwork. Very briefly, as you go back to the fall, to the original sin of humanity, we find that Satan, the great opposer of God, tempted Adam and Eve with essentially self-deification. They could be gods like the one true God. They they could be self-determine how they would live, and they could find pleasure by themselves, or perhaps even worse, in themselves. Of course, as soon as they partook of the fruit, which was probably not inherently poisonous, but was a symbol for the poison of sin and self-righteousness, their eyes were indeed open. Satan was right in that sense. They, they saw new things, new horizons, but it didn't make them happy. They immediately fell from grace, and they were separated from their Creator. Joy was lost. Peace and harmony had been abandoned. But God didn't leave things this way. He came to the people, seeking after them, searching for them, as was His custom. But they hid, and they covered themselves with flimsy leaves, seeking to hide their nakedness, of which they were now ashamed, and they made excuses for their sin. And as we see at the outset of the fall of humanity, self-righteousness becomes the norm. They sought to to self-justify by covering themselves and by covering up their actions. God eventually calls to himself a people. This is in keeping with his promise to Eve who had fallen from grace, that He would bring from her a seed which would conquer the evil and would conquer Satan and bring redemption to His people. He would restore humanity. That seed would be passed down through a people that we call the Jews, the Israelites. After bringing the Israelites out of captivity, after about 400 years of slavery, God gives them a law, He gives them a covenant. He will relate to them by grace, but He has great expectations placed upon them. He gives them means whereby they can stay connected to Him, be, be reconciled to Him. All the sacrifices were meant to demonstrate to them that sin is awful and, and is calling for death. Sin calls for death. That's the penalty for sin. You all know, the sacrificial system was meant to remind them that sin was not only awful but there was a way to be restored to god reconciled to him the animal was a symbol the animal in and of itself did not take away their sin there was nothing magical about the blood of oxen or sheep but it was symbolic and prophetic pointing forward to the one whose blood was full of power for jesus was infinite in power and goodness and could give life once again. But through all those hundreds of years, many, many centuries, for Israel, not just at Passover, not just on the Day of Atonement, but sometimes daily, millions upon millions upon millions of animals sacrificed over and over, bloody rituals reminding them of their sin, they lost the significance of this. And they sought to self-justify so that eventually by the time you get to the prophets, God says through them as his mouthpieces, I'm done with your bloody sacrifices. What I want from you is a contrite heart. What I want from you is a repentant heart. What I want from you is your heart. I want you to worship me from the heart. I don't just want these these sacrifices, I I don't just want the actions. And so as you see from the first sin in the garden onward, humanity seeks to self-justify. Whether it's through God-given laws that are used improperly or through our own efforts, we have a disease within us which seeks to to self-justify because we are so self-righteous. And as Jesus came into this, this world, this Roman-dominated but Jewish in culture, Jewish religious world, he encountered throughout his 30-odd years of life self-righteousness at every turn. You see this showing up, most especially in this section, with the religious leaders. And that's been true throughout the Gospels, if you take time to read them carefully. Jesus is arrested in Luke chapter 22 after he cries out to God that God might let this cup of suffering pass from him, this cup of not just physical suffering, but the fact that he will be spiritually, at least temporarily, separated from his Father. That was going to be agony for him, and yet he was willing to go to the cross and experience such suffering. One of his close friends, Judas betrays him to the Jewish officials. He is arrested and at the end of chapter 22 taken to their council where they try him and find him guilty. And now at the beginning of chapter 23, they take him to the Roman officials because they don't have authority to put anyone to death. They can't lay down a sentence of capital punishment. That is under Roman jurisdiction. And so they bring him to Pilate. But they do so with accusations. They don't just let Pilate ask the questions. They appeal to Pilate in such a way that he will lay down the sentence that they want. And so they say that Jesus is is trying to stand against the Roman government. As you see in verse 2, he is supposedly forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar. That is not true at all. Jesus had said Formerly, that it was appropriate to give tribute to Romans as long as God was supreme, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. There is a higher authority above all, but Jesus never said that we shouldn't give respect to the state. So the Jews, the Jewish officials here in this case, are bringing a a half-truth, which is a full lie, And they are self-justifying in the commission of this lie to get what they want. Furthermore, they are saying here that Jesus is going to lead an insurrection, implying that Jesus is going to try to rid the Jewish people of Caesar's good graces. Now, the Jewish officials hated Caesar. They hated Rome. But they knew that if they could appeal to Pilate at the point of harmony and peace, that they could convince him that Jesus was going to lead some kind of rebellion and create problems in this portion of the Roman Empire, that perhaps Pilate would do the easy thing and put him down so that an insurrection could not be led. Now, none of these things are true, but it's a demonstration that when we are so self-righteous, we can justify the most sinful things. And though we will take a few moments to look at a few other responses to Jesus here in Luke chapter 23. The Jewish officials perhaps are the darkest and most evil in their response to Jesus. Why is that? Because, frankly, he came and he threatened what they loved the most. Now, probably without exception, those who made up this this council of the Jews, these these Jewish officials, probably without exception, they were wealthy. Their their position afforded them wealth. Their position afforded them the ability to, to live above everybody else around them. And as we know, as 21st century Westerners, wealth is intoxicating. But I think perhaps even more than this, their power and the esteem in which they were held by the people in the land, was far more intoxicating. Some of us, by our own experience, or perhaps with those we love, know those that have been addicted to alcohol, illicit narcotics, or other things. And we have seen people, or perhaps again, felt it ourselves, the grip of such things over us over time we develop an insatiable desire for such things to the point that we must have them we must get our next fix and when the effects of the fix wear off our hearts our minds are drawn only toward the next one and so we are controlled mentally and eventually physiologically by such substances. But in the interval between fixes, there is a loathing, a self-loathing, because we know that how foolish it is to to approach such things as though they can make us happy. They can't. They never deliver. And then over time, to quiet the voices of anxiety or struggle or sadness or self-loathing, we return again. And thus the Horrible cycle continues between temporary satisfaction and self-loathing. Self-righteousness is like that, but worse. Because eventually, if one is self-righteous long enough, if one has self-justified long enough, the cycle becomes absent often of self-loathing. The Jewish officials were like this. It was much worse than any illicit drug or alcohol or any other substance because they convinced themselves that they were the most righteous. Despite the fact that their wealth and their position was intoxicating, the fact that they were adored, the fact that they were looked up to, and perhaps even more substantively, existentially, down inside of them, they felt really good about themselves. They had quieted the voices of a a tender conscience. They they no longer even recognized when they did bad things. They had convinced themselves that they had managed sinfulness. And so they went from fix to fix, from, from deed to deed, from moment of adoration to moment of adoration from the crowds, and in the meantime, they patted each other in the back, congratulated each other that they had become so self-righteous, that they had achieved such spiritual nirvana, so to speak. And that is intoxicating. Cycles of self-loathing tend to sort of dissipate and go away. And as I said, this is worse than any substance that one could ever be addicted to. It led these officials to completely miss who Jesus was. Because we have the New Testament as a lens, we can look back at the Old Testament and see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had told Israel. He's the perfect fulfillment. He's exactly what God foretold. And how is it that the ones who knew Jesus God's Word the best. It is likely that the Jewish council would have had the entire Old Testament memorized by heart. You could have said to them, what did the prophet Habakkuk say, which frankly that's hard for us. We can barely even find Habakkuk, right, in our Old Testaments, and they could have told you. They could have said, what was the high priest to do on the Day of Atonement? And they could have rattled it off. You could have asked them, what did David say in his various Psalms and and what was the occasion upon which David wrote these psalms? And they could have told you. And yet, when the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God came, they missed it entirely. And there's, there's no other way to, to, to understand this. There's no other way to, to, to see how this could be, to even conceive how this could be possible except for the blinding and intoxicating effects of self-righteousness. And Jesus came threatening that. And and that's why they hated him so much. He threatened their self-righteousness. He called them serpents. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them blind leaders. Jesus taught that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That the only way to live is to die. That heartless acts of, of suffering in front of people, like, like fasting, like the giving of alms to the poor, that when you do that for the wrong reasons, you've lost your reward. Jesus' words were like a, a sharp blade that pierced to the very core of their soul. In a sense, they were throwing a horrible adult fit here at the end of Jesus' life, justifying murder, justifying deceit, and rejecting the very one who had come to give them life. It is as though they are putting their hands over their ears and screaming with fury, we won't have this. That though Jesus came speaking with great authority, was able to perform signs that only God could have done, that that was not enough to turn them away from the intoxicating effects of their self-righteousness. And therefore, here at the end, they seek to self-justify because of their self-righteousness. Now I think it's possible to draw some parallels between the Jewish officials of Jesus' day and in our culture. I still think that around 70% of our nation self-identifies as evangelical. The number is coming down, but it's still quite high. If you use other qualifiers for that, those who have experienced some sort of born-again experience, a conversion experience, who see Jesus as the exclusive way to God, who are faithful, regular church attenders and worshipers, that number comes way, way down. But I I say that if that 70% number is true and then you take into account others that self-identify as Christian or faithful to other religions, they're There has perhaps never been a culture quite so uh, religious as ours. And we live in a culture that is very self-righteous. And though perhaps the secular philosophy of of self-deification, of the inherent worth of self-man is becoming more and more prevalent, in and of itself is a religion too. We can't help but worship something. God, God created us that way. We have, we have a drive toward it. We will either worship the one true God or something inferior, but we're always worshiping something. And Jesus was so hated because he threatened all of that. And so our world, in so many senses, is no better than this one. And those who hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the only and exclusive way back to God, and that it cannot be earned, you can't pay for it, that it is to be received exclusively by faith, that you can only come back to God through one who laid down his life in your place, that threatens us to our very core. Because we have not ceased to be self-righteous, and we have not ceased to self-justify. Now for those of us who have already trusted Christ, that, is, that has changed. Our confession is that Jesus is our only hope for life. And, and by the way, that's why as a church we don't just talk about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus at Easter time. We talk about it all the time because it is the foundation of our hope and we must come back to it again and again and again if we are not drinking deeply from that well, to use a metaphor that we often use around here, we grow thirsty and we will seek for satisfaction at other sources. So we, we rehearse the gospel here all the time because we so desperately need it. The disease of self-righteousness is, is still knocking at the door of our hearts. And yet we turn. We turn. We turn away from self-righteousness. We we turn away from self-justification because we recognize that disease in us and where it can lead. The Jewish leaders were not the only ones here who were self-righteous and self-justifying. Pilate was like this, perhaps more subtly. Pilate is less antagonistic toward Jesus. In fact, as I read the story of Pilate and the various accounts in the gospel, it's a curious guy. It's almost as though you you think at some point he's going to kind of turn back like like he's gonna really let Jesus go and and, and every time I read it if I'm being honest I'm, I'm almost cheering for that like you know Jesus is innocent let him go but he didn't Jesus though righteous and as is recorded elsewhere in the Gospels Pilate's own wife saw this Pilate's wife was given a dream demonstrating the great righteousness of Jesus that that her husband should not follow through with such treachery, he does anyway. Because he wants to maintain favor with the people, and of course, more importantly, with his Caesar, with his, with his king. He wanted to keep the peace. Keeping the peace for, for Pilate was, was far more important than doing what was right. You have to believe from his words that he truly didn't think that Jesus was, was sinful. As a relatively savvy guy, as a politician, because that's what he was to his core, he could see what was right. He was willing to kind of scourge Jesus, give him a a light punishment, and then send him away. I don't suspect that Pilate really loved the Jews that much. He probably didn't love this assignment. This part of the world was under Roman control, and he had been given this place to, to watch over and care for. The primary thing that he was supposed to do was to exact taxes, make money for his king, and just keep the people at peace. Herod was not willing to to do what was right because he loved what came to him, what accrued to him if he did what his king wanted him to do. And there and again, Pilate is, is worshiping a false god. What he could gain from such horrible actions. And like the Jewish officials, we find ourselves here, once again, the mirror of the word is put in front of us, where because of our self-righteousness, we, we justify things that we know aren't right to get what we want, that, that fix that will satisfy us. The other person who had some measure of authority here was Herod. Herod was a regional king. He was in Jerusalem for the Passover, like like Pilate would have been. He didn't have any jurisdiction specifically in Judah, though, in Judea. He was basically just a puppet king. Pilate sends him, Jesus, to Herod, though, because Herod was far more acquainted with Jewish customs. Herod was was sort of excited to see Jesus, because Jesus was sort of an oddity to him. He had heard about Jesus. He had heard that Jesus could do magical things, that he could do tricks. And kind of like a carnival sideshow, he hoped that Jesus would come do that for him. Kind of be like a, a court jester and give him some brief happiness. Thrill him for a few moments. Jesus wouldn't even speak to Herod here. Jesus wouldn't even answer him. And Herod, with great fury, for Herod loved himself very much, allows his soldiers to mock Jesus, much like the Roman soldiers would do later in the chapter, and treat him better than they knew, in a sense, because they do array him in splendor like a king. But it's not because they see him as their king. It's not because they submit to him as their king. It's because they're mocking him, the one who made them. The one who in just a few moments really would go and, and die for them. We find the crowds following along with the Jewish officials. You see this in verse 4. You find it again in verses 18 through 20. The crowds now are, are brought into this plan of the Jewish officials to lead Pilate to, to lead Jesus to death. They show themselves to be fickle. They live by fear rather than by faith. Later on, you will find two criminals that Jesus is crucified with. One, of course, will place his faith in Jesus, but one won't, mocking Jesus to his very end, showing his great evil. It's key. it's keeping and keeping with Jesus' mission that He would be crucified with sinners. Jesus, of course, didn't deserve to be crucified at all, but by being placed in the middle of two sinners, we see the great juxtaposition of sin and righteousness in our world, one turning to Jesus and, and one not, one to the very end maintaining His hatred and anger, not really debating the fact that He was evil but not caring. And Perhaps that's where sin ultimately leads to, where you stop self-justifying and you just don't care anymore. That that is That is satanic. But of course, that's what's been going on here in this section. Satan has been very involved in all of this. Satan himself entered into Judas that Jesus might be betrayed. Jesus tells Peter that Satan desires to sift him like wheat, but Jesus had prayed for him, and then Peter does deny Jesus. He was sifted in a sense, though restored later. Satan is glorying in all of this. He's glorying in the self-righteousness of the Jewish leaders, and the self-promotion of Pilate, and the fear of the Jewish crowds, and the abandonment over to sin and hedonism of this one criminal. Darkness is prevailing, and that is why from noon, the 6th hour, in verse 44, to 3 p.m., the ninth hour, the whole land becomes dark. Satan seems to be having sway. The Son of God is bearing the sins of humanity. And it looks as though evil will conquer. And herein and again, we... We feel this as Christians. We we feel so often that evil is winning, that it is prevailing. We see it in people we love, sometimes those closest to us, if if not at least those around us, co-workers and neighbors. It troubles us to see people who are so self-righteous, who justify sin so, so often, so regularly, so naturally. And we feel it in ourselves, too. We, we feel the darkness still within. For though the power and penalty of sin have been broken over those who belong to Christ, though we've been given a new nature, yet we, we still feel the pinch of darkness. We, we feel its sting. We feel our own tendency towards self-righteousness and self-justification. But what was the purpose of Jesus' coming? What's the culmination of His coming? It's the fact that He came to take our place. The righteous for the unrighteous and restore us to God. All the categories of people that we have talked about today, whether they are inherently self-justifiers, they're religious leaders, or they are seeking to self-promote like Pilate, whether they are fearful like the crowds or whether they are just abandoned over to darkness like the criminal. They can all be placed under the umbrella term self-righteous and therefore unrighteous. But Jesus came, the only righteous man that had ever lived, to take the place of the unrighteous. And this is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus became a substitute. He, he stood in our place, in our place condemned, he stood. And this doctrine of the substitution of Jesus has been and will remain under attack until Jesus returns and restores all of humanity and the world to himself, all of those who submit to him and the world to himself. This doctrine that Jesus is a substitute who takes away sin has always been and will always be for, for human history under attack. Why is that? Up to our day, why is that? Because it gets to the heart of the problem. And the problem is we are sinners who can't save ourselves. And more than any substance there might be, self-righteousness is the most intoxicating thing that we can ever experience. it's, It's the most pernicious, evil cup we can ever drink from. But if we're being honest, it is so intoxicating. But that's why Jesus came. He came to take our place, to expose our sin, to take our punishment, and to restore us to God. Some had already submitted to this, Those who we see following him in verse 27, Luke calls them a great multitude. He singles out the women here in this section. Again in verse 49, and again at the end of the chapter, these women in particular with sensitive hearts who saw Jesus as their only hope, he calls them daughters of Jerusalem in verse 28. Some had already submitted to him like these ladies and like Joseph we will see at the end of the chapter. Their self-righteousness had been exposed and they, they saw where it would lead. They saw the penalty of it and they saw that the only way out was Jesus. Now they didn't fully understand what was happening here. Thus their weeping. Thus their confusion and mourning. But he says to them in verse 28, don't weep for me. Glory is coming for me. And by implication, glory is coming for you. The ones who reject me, both now and in the future, they are the ones upon whom judgment is coming. But Jesus came to take judgment. Jesus came to take punishment. And that's why, as we see in this section, in verse 45, curtain of the temple was torn into. Now, we've got to lay a little bit of context here, especially if you're not super familiar with the biblical story. God had given Israel a thing we call the tabernacle. It was essentially a glorified mobile tent that they could set up wherever their camp was, and whenever they would set up their camp, they would put the tabernacle in the middle of their encampment. The tribes of Israel arrayed around it, and there God would descend and, and meet with them, particularly Moses and then the priests. The priests. Later on, under the leadership of Solomon, the third king of Israel, a more permanent structure was built that we call the temple. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there was a place called the holy place where the priests and various priests could go in and and perform certain sacrifices and pray for the people and so forth. But there was an inner place, an inner sanctum, the, the holiest place. You might have heard of it before called the holy of holies. And between the holy place and the holiest place, there was a very strong and thick and substantial curtain, a veil, placed between the two. And only once per year could the high priest, the, the boss of the priests, so to speak, go into that place and make atonement for his sin, sprinkling some of his blood, uh, a blood of an animal, on the Ark of the Covenant, and specifically on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, a place called the Mercy Seat. And on that Day of Atonement, He would enter in there and do that, and after that, other sacrifices would be performed and and the people would be atoned for on this special day. And for centuries now, God had separated Himself from the people with that veil. The idea, very simply, was that God is purely, completely holy, and God cannot Fellowship with sinfulness. But he made provision so that at least once a year the people could be atoned for. And therefore he could fellowship with them. But, but only from a distance. In the old covenant of Israel, and the Mosaic covenant, you get the idea that God is present with his people. But still at a distance. Teaching them that sin is awful and sin must be paid for. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who was the provision of God, the one who would atone for the sins of the people of God, spills his blood down that cursed tree. And as he commits his spirit into the hands of his Father, that curtain is torn in two. And God will now fellowship with his people As father, as lover of their souls, as the one who delights in reconciling love. For he poured out his wrath on Jesus, not on animals, not on these people, but on his son instead. And Jesus sacrificed his life, the righteous for the unrighteous, to restore us to God. The unexpected happened the veil of the temple the curtain of the temple was torn down the middle and people now have full access to god because of and through jesus jesus fulfilled all the expectations of israel and jesus is still my friends the hope of the world the one who can restore the unrighteous the self-righteous the self-justifiers those who seek pleasure and favor and position, those who abandon themselves over to evil, those who live in fear, Jesus is the only way, He's the only one who can heal us and bring us back to God. Where self-righteousness seems to be folly, where self-promotion will never satisfy, where fear will not overtake us, and abandonment over to hedonistic living to, to sinful abandonment we know is folly and can't satisfy. Jesus is the one who restores us to the original design. He is the one who restores the image of God in us. He is the one who redeems and reconciles and atones for. Jesus is the only one. It could have been no other way. God's wrath had to be appeased. He would not have been just had he not punished sin. But in justly punishing sin, upon the one who did not deserve it, he now offers justification for those who will receive Jesus by faith. And therefore, as Paul says in the third chapter of his letter to the Romans, God is both just because he has now punished sin, but he is the justifier of all those who will place their faith in Jesus his son. A willing substitute, the sacrifice for our sins. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Isaiah 53. If you don't have a plan for some deliberate, deliberate private or family worship in the coming week, I invite you to privately or with your family take time to ponder and consider the claims of Isaiah and Isaiah 53. The prophet says in verse 1, Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. crowds dismissed it. The criminal crucified by Jesus didn't care. So whether you dismiss it or whether you don't care, the truth is still there. Jesus came under the plan of God, providentially at the perfect time to offer himself to all who will believe. And so I say to you today, today may be the day of salvation for you. Do not harden your hearts, but instead call upon Him who alone can save you, the one who took your place, the righteous for the unrighteous. And brothers and sisters, it's free. You cannot earn it. Jesus suffered for you. And despite the fact that self-righteousness is so incredibly intoxicating, Far more than you know, perhaps far more than you've ever put your finger on. It, it's easy to see people addicted to narcotics or alcohol or other substances and, and see that as great folly. It, it has led them to, to horrible living, to, to sadness and sorrow. It's much harder to look inside and to see the intoxicating things that, that call for our attention, that, that like idols, clamor for our affections. But if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, if you have lived under the intoxicating effects of self-righteousness, you know and I know that it is not leading you anywhere happy. Your joy is not full. But Jesus came to restore you to full joy, to fellowship with the one who made you, the one with whom you can live for eternity, who will satisfy you now and for forever. You have full access to him through Jesus. And so I call on you today. To receive Jesus by faith. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Hebrews chapter 9. We won't take time to read all these verses, but this helps illuminate to some degree what we just talked about in Luke 23 about Jesus giving us access to God. The author says in verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, speaking of the tabernacle of Israel, he entered once for all into the holy places through that curtain, through that veil, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if a sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living god jesus gave himself for your justification jesus gave himself for your restoration i plead with you to call on him to receive him by faith but but for those of us who belong to him. We see the connection here, don't we? We weren't just rescued by the blood of Jesus, brought brought into the holiest place to have communion with God so that we could live however we want. Jesus has brought us back into communion with God that we might live for the glory of God, which is also the path of happiness and peace. Because of the fall, humanity has become self-righteous and sought to self-justify. But Jesus came to take our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, and restore us to God. What are some implications as we walk away? First, we must be careful to discern our inevitable tendency toward self-righteousness and self-justification. The regular application of the gospel is the only antidote. Just as the evil one, the opposer of God, Satan, sought to destroy Jesus and his followers, he does the same today appealing to us at the point of self-righteousness even those of us who have placed our faith in jesus the remnants of that disease still echo in our ears and our hearts we must be careful to identify these tendencies and instead apply the gospel to our hearts each and every day what do you glory in when the chips are down and you find your reputation on the line when when your very existence is threatened money job position re- reputation where does your mind turn does it turn to your full bank account does it turn to the job that you hold does it turn to the people who esteem you highly we will know that we are Fighting the fight of of self-righteousness. We're, we're fighting against that tendency. That whenever the chips are down and and the dearest things in our lives are threatened, that our hearts and our minds turn first to our position in Jesus. That's when we know that we have really gotten the gospel. And that does not come easy. It comes through a lifetime of regular application of the gospel. That means practically when somebody comes to you and re- and perhaps tells you of something that they're concerned about in your life, that you don't turn first toward all the good things you do, you turn first to Jesus who gave himself for you. That perhaps whenever you fail at work, like you really blow it, that you don't argue with your boss all the good things that you've done, but that inside you remember that even if these horrible things are true about you, even if you have really royally failed, your identity is in the one who gave himself for you, and that cannot be taken away. That you recognize on your hard days when you failed as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a pastor. That your first tendency is not to rehearse all the good things you've done to counterbalance your failures, but to Jesus who has covered your failures. How do you do that? You apply the gospel to your heart regularly. Not just once a week, for most of us not just once a day, but over and over again. My righteousness exists in the one who gave himself for me, the righteous for the unrighteous. He is my only hope. And lastly for today, we must commit ourselves collectively to growth and faith and good deeds in keeping with Christ's mission of redemption and restoration. We must commit ourselves collectively as a church family to growth and faith and good deeds in keeping with Christ's mission of redemption and restoration. One last passage. Turn with me, please, to... Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, this connection between what Jesus has done for us and what He calls us to, let us, as a response, to what Jesus has done for us on the cross collectively as His people Pursue together good works for the glory of God in keeping with what He has done for us. Let's stand and let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take the Word of God and apply it to our hearts, that You might give us, indeed, full assurance of faith. And as a response to this, that we might worship You in holiness. We thank you, our Savior, for taking our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. We pray that you will transform us one more degree. For those who have not yet submitted to Jesus, Holy Spirit, give them new birth, transform them and grant them faith. As people of the cross, may we boast only in it as our glory and as our hope. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.